Millennials are achieving freedom with new definitions of success. Our careers, relationships, education, family, even our politics look nothing like our parents. We're adopting what works and throwing out the rest. We are tired, but not worn, in our quest to get there. We Should Be Sleeping explores the things worth losing sleep over. Each week, we discuss the news and topics that keep us awake. Then, our guests share the intentional ways they've done it differently to achieve a new brand of success that's authentic, unconventional, and definitive of our generation. Not ready for bed? Neither are we. I'm Douglas Bonaparte. I'm Heather Bonaparte. Welcome to We Should Be Sleeping. Hey guys, and welcome back to We Should Be Sleeping. Of course, I'm here with my wonderful wife, Heather. How are you, Heather? Happy New Year. And didn't you do that last episode? I did. It's just the <laughs> excitement of it all, you know? Here we are. Here we are. 2021. Although I will tell you something very exciting that happened in the month of December. What? Uh, that I'm still very much enjoying into the new year. I bought one of those KitchenAid mixers. Yes, your bread mixer. Yes. Well, so it's it's kind of it's beautiful. It really is. So I've been talking about this for years, right? About getting one of these really fancy like professional grade mixers and how it was going to take my baking game to the next level and I finally did it. And the thing that was really preventing me from doing it all this time was really just that we didn't have the space for it. Yeah, well, the thing is huge, and it, it needs to be on the countertop. And Doug's <laughs> coffee setup has fully hijacked my entire kitchen as it is. So I, I politely disagree. So we had to uh, not only you know once we got the thing, it was sitting in a box on our floor, and I'm right. like, where are we gonna put this thing? It, We've got to make oh, some space. It's not just large; it's heavy. It's right. It's not something you could easily move around. I mean, it really needs to have a space. I think I put it in one of the cabinets for like a hot minute before I realized that was a pretty stupid idea. Right. So the point of all of this is, was that getting this KitchenAid mixer forced us to go through all of our cabinets and even some of our like little built-in closets near the kitchen. Like the drawers you never go into? Like yeah. the two that are like way up top above the refrigerator? Right. And to really just dive for space, right? To see where we could possibly find more space. It was a land grab. And in, and in doing it, we found like these relics from our wedding, right? Uh, these appliances, these kitchen appliances that were maybe used one time ever in the seven years since we've been married. Not even. If at all. I mean, some of them were brand new. They still had the registration card in it. It's shameful. So it got me thinking, uh, what were some of the most wasteful, ridiculous, stupid things that we registered for and that people should really avoid when you're putting together a wedding registry. I would argue the stupidest thing you've registered for was me. Oh my God. That's a good one. If we had one of those buttons, like a wah, 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 wah. We actually do have one of those buttons. We just don't hit know it. which one it is. He's going to hit it and there's going to be some other sound. No. Anyway, what do you right. got, What do you got on your list? Worst of- appliances to register for, biggest waste of money, and a huge t- uh, space suck as well. The salad spinner. Yeah. Tell me about the salad spinner. All you do is you press a button and the lettuce spins around like a, one of those really fast rides at the at the circus or at the, the state it's, fair. It's called the Gravitron. And the Gravitron, <laughs> I've got a better idea. Use some paper towels and dry your damn lettuce. Yeah, it's a pretty stupid gadget. I have another one. What's and this up? one's controversial, but I don't care. The rice cooker. Huh? There are other ways to make rice. Like? A pan. <laughs> 
<laughs> you don't need a or, rice cooker. Or a pot. You don't need a big appliance people that can only do one thing. I think there are a few cultures that would disagree with you. So be it. Like I said, come at me, bro. Okay. okay. Here's another one. This one was really embarrassing that I found. I found these these mini hors d'oeuvre, like a mini hors d'oeuvre serveware set. So a little tiny shot glasses that aren't for alcohol. They're for like sips of soup and a very small little uh, spoon. I'm not a caterer. I'm not having a dinner party where I'm bussing around amuse bouche to people. Like who who am I? All right, future husbands, you need to right. listen what, up here. This is thinking? what this is what they're doing when you're spacing out in the department store or at whatever, you know. Now online. No, now <laughs> this is what they're doing when you're playing on your phone, not paying attention. They're getting shot glasses that are not meant for booze. And and at the time it didn't matter. And maybe for years after that it didn't matter. But someday you're gonna be stuck at home during a pandemic and your wife is going to be making you unload these boxes of these mini hors d'oeuvre shot glasses and you're going to be saying, when the hell did we get these and what am I doing? How did my life get like this? And I'm going to say, remember that wedding registry? You didn't pay attention. Okay, the next one. No guy guy should have to go through this. I think the next one's mine, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, here we go. I have have some fearful memories of this, actually, just recently. It's the mandolin. If y'all don't know what a mandolin is, it's it's basically you shouldn't equi- know. If you don't know, don't bother. Yeah, don't 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 even look it up. This we is- had our mandolin for eight years, and Doug used it for the first time on Thanksgiving, and, and he almost sliced do? his damn finger off. That's right, and I wasn't even doing it slicing meat or a vegetable. I was doing it by simply cleaning it because it hadn't been used for the first time <laughs> ever, ever. And it's sharp. <laughs> it's sharp. It's basically a deli meat slicer, you know, razor that can take off your fingertips. All right, I don't, think don't get it. So here's the last one. The immersion blender. Can we just have a moment of silence for all the soups that I've never made? Why don't you explain to people what an immersion blender is? It's real a quick. handheld blender that you're supposed to stick in a hot pot to like make something creamy. Ah. Uh, Unnecessary. Like to, whip, to whip. Whip another way. Okay. So I, I actually used the immersion blender to make that coffee drink during the pandemic. Oh, right. After, Wait, what's it called? The fr- I don't know. That froth. Yeah, the frothy coffee at the beginning of this whole thing that was going uh, yeah, wild it on vi- Instagram. Yeah, it was going viral, and all it did was literally spackle the entire kitchen in instant coffee. <laughs> that thing can die. That was the first time we ever used our immersion blender either. Yeah, done with that. Oh, good times. 2021. Let that's me tell it, guys. you. That's 2020, that, 2021. That's how you can uh, free up your life for the new year. Throw out, throw out the stuff you registered for. Simplify your life. <laughs> So speaking of the new year, uh, aside from cleaning out your cabinets, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. I really think not only should we not have any resolutions, which I think a lot of people are really, you know, aligned with me on that, that there really is no need for resolutions this year. Never. I was never a fan. Okay. But I think we need to take it a step further. Honestly, I think we should set zero expectations at all for this year. In fact, we shouldn't even move. Let's not move. Let's not breathe. Keep your hands and legs inside Uh the vehicle. So Let's do nothing because no matter what, this year has got to be better than last year. You know, I'm knocking on the proverbial wood here. I I do agree with the notion of the under-promise, over-deliver. Like, I actually use that in business quite a bit. It's very effective. So I'm on board with you there. I don't know if I'm really going to ride with you here and set no expectations whatsoever. And I know you're just going to get mad at me because I have a different view of 2020 than you, which we don't need to go into right now. But I I generally accept your, your thesis here. 
Good times. <laughs> you got nothing for me on that, huh? I, I, I've got nothing. I'm seriously, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and hope for the best. Honestly, if we even get four good months at the very end of this year, it okay. will make it a better year. And the thing that got me thinking about this was Joe Biden, oh. who's, you know, going who's, to be sworn who, in. Who's that? He's going to be sworn in in a couple weeks, praise be. And we are now in a situation where we could say, like, no matter what happens, things are going to get better. He doesn't even have to do very much at all. <laughs> it's just going to get better. Like radio radio silence. Would right. Be good. So like, again, like, let's just not set any expectations and just allow things to get a little bit better. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Well, that was great. And here we are in a new year. So let's bring on our guest, Anthony Pompliano. Anthony Pompliano, or Pomp as he is better known, is an entrepreneur and investor. After getting his start at companies like Facebook and Snapchat, he helped found Morgan Creek Digital Assets, an early-stage venture capital fund which specializes in blockchain technology and digital assets. Pomp is who I would consider the poster boy for Bitcoin. He's the guy you see on CNBC, in the news, and in your face on social media talking about the number one cryptocurrency in the land. He's truly become a de facto subject matter expert on Bitcoin. However, over the years, I've watched Pomp evolve from crypto nerd to finance content king. He is now interviewing some of the brightest business minds, including yours truly, on the Pomp podcast (laughs) and has seemingly and firmly solidified his place in the world of finance. Anthony, welcome to We Should Be Sleeping. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, guys. You like that intro? That was an absurdly generous intro, but I'll take it. That's fine. If you say it, then that's good. I think you deserve it after all the hard work that you've been putting into the space. I'm just having fun. All right. So let's get started from the ground up. So it's important to me that we don't take for granted this in-depth knowledge that the two of you have in finance and technology. So Anthony, on behalf of what most of our lay listeners are thinking, what is the Bitcoin? (laughs) At its core, Bitcoin is just a digital currency. And so if you think of most people in the developed world, they use digital or electronic money. And each one of the currencies that they'll use has some different interface or user experience. And so you can think of the US dollar with a specific monetary policy can be used at your bank. You can send wires. You can go and you can punch in numbers on a keypad at an ATM and actually get physical dollars. Or you can go on Venmo and you can send money that way. You can split an Uber ride. Right? There's kind of all these different interfaces of how you use that money. But ultimately, it's all the same monetary policy of the US dollar. Bitcoin essentially has created a new type of monetary policy. It's very, very opposite of the US dollar. And people kind of all around the world are racing to build out all the different user interfaces and kind of infrastructure to popularize that new monetary policy or that new digital currency. So it's kind of the more we change, the more we stay the same, but there are some significant differences. And I think that's kind of what everyone is debating right now is which one's the best, which one's going to survive, will they coexist, all that. And so that was actually, that was the best description I've ever heard. So in many respects, though, it's also really kind of stands for a concept. So to you, what is the concept of what this does from a freedom standpoint in terms of what is Bitcoin to you? Like beyond just the fact that it's either store of value or can be a currency and exchange goods and services and stuff like that. What does it mean to you? 
I think that there's two things to understand about the legacy world that just everyday use, you're going and buying food or whatever you don't think about. But one is that the US dollar and the monetary policy and the use of inflation is actually the greatest driver of wealth inequality in the world. If you think about kind of the top 50% of the country or so, they own investable assets and they really understand and have some general sense of personal finance. The bottom 50%, one, not only do they not have the understanding of personal finance, but they don't understand how the monetary system works. They don't understand how the financial markets work. And so they're left with no investable assets, meaning that over time, they're actually losing wealth and those who invest are making wealth. And so I think kind of that's one piece of issue in the legacy world. The second is the United States has weaponized the dollar all around the world. And some of that is here at home and also abroad. And so when you think of Bitcoin, Bitcoin basically pushes back on those two things. One is its monetary policy is built in a way that essentially rather than have the currency devalued over time, it actually increases in value because there's kind of absolute scarcity or provable scarcity. The second thing is there's much more sovereignty with Bitcoin. So it's much harder to have a currency weaponized against you. And so when you think of those two things, like here in the developed world, like those might not be the most important things people think about, but in the developing world, that is really, really important. And so for me, it ultimately just stands for freedom. One of you said it a couple of minutes ago. It's just, it is a different way of interacting with money and it ultimately offloads the control from governments and it puts it into the hands of the everyday citizen. And so if Bitcoin ends up growing to be a global reserve currency or getting kind of widespread adoption in any meaningful way on the global stage, it in essence will separate state and money. And I think that's like a big kind of crazy idea 10 years ago. Today it looks a little bit more probable, but it's still pretty crazy. And we'll see kind of how it plays out. Definitely. It's democratizing in many respects. That is the hope, at least. Does that notion like jive with you as a person, like bringing it really personal for a second, like the notion of freedom, democratization, like is this something that like resonates with Anthony? Is that what like makes you excited? How does it connect to really you as a person? One of the interesting kind of anecdotes from just my life is like, I've had the opportunity to travel to a lot of different countries. I tend not to be the guy who's like, let's go see the Eiffel Tower in Paris, more the guy who's like, hey, I wonder what Colombia is like. Let's go there. And been to a number of places like that, but also spent a year in Iraq with the US Army. And what ends up happening is when you talk to veterans or people who have traveled a lot, they tend to actually be like, big pacifists. And they also tend to have a much better understanding that like the way of life that I enjoy is not the way of life that everyone else enjoys. And so when you think about the tools in the toolbox to kind of combat or change or improve somebody's life, in the United States, we think of there's technology and there's policy. But unfortunately, in most places in the world, they don't have the benefit of policy. If you're in China and you disagree with the Chinese government, you can't go lobby them. Yeah, like that's not life. a thing because you just end up in jail. But what you can do is you can use technology to create change. And so I tend to think that Bitcoin specifically is the greatest chance we have to have kind of widespread impact. There's a lot of stuff that still needs to happen for it to kind of come to fruition. But I can't think of a piece of technology that could have a bigger impact than Bitcoin. And it's mainly just because money is the core unit of account of everything we do. 
it's literally involved in everything. And so I think that's what makes this so exciting and what resonates with. So there's a point in the not so distant past where working at companies like a Facebook or a Snapchat, like the dawn of social media, was as untraditional as it gets. So I find it kind of funny that you would jump out of these environments to something even more untraditional like Bitcoin and blockchain technology. I'm curious as to how your time working at social media companies impacted your pivot or had to do with your desire to go to the world of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I tend to think a lot about what is my perspective on technology and investing? And the best way that I've come to describe it is I constantly look for the things that are on the fringes of society that many people dismiss or believe are not material, but I believe will become the consensus idea or the consensus trade 10 years from now. And so some of those companies for sure kind of had those properties. If you look kind of today, maybe it's things like Bitcoin, it's psychedelics, it's computer brain interfaces, that type of stuff. But I intersect that belief of like, go find the opportunities at the edges of society with having a really long time horizon as well. And so from an investing standpoint, like I own no public equities. It's all focused in the private market. It's focused on innovation. It's focused Is that true? on- You don't own a single publicly traded stock? The only public stock that I hold is 100% of my retirement account is in GBTC. So it's not really a public equity in the sense of a company. It's just Bitcoin exposure in the retirement account. But I don't Got own it. a single public company. And so when people ask why, like I have no advantage there. And I also think that when you have an advantage in the private markets and you're able to go into kind of the fringes of that society, there's very rare does somebody say, you know what, I'm going to create a company in X industry that is unpopular today. I'm going to take that company public you'll have no support. Like There will be no interest in that. And so it kind of forces you into the private markets. But I do think that what we're very quickly finding is many of the best investors in the world who historically were in the public markets are starting to realize the benefits of this hybrid model. And they're saying, it doesn't matter if the company's public or private. I want to go invest in the best companies. I want to find innovation, et cetera. And so I think that that kind of line is blending a little bit. And then when you talk about crypto and tokenization and all that, I really do believe that we're going to enter a world where there is no more public or private. Basically from day one, companies are started and there is some aspect of public exposure that people can get. It's just, we need the regulations to catch up and also the technology. I think that's why SPACs and venture capital are just becoming more and more popular. And I think we'll continue to gravitate that way. It sounds to me like you like playing long games, if not very long games here. The pivoting here. So you built up a huge platform, but let's take a step back again to the beginning. How old were you when you decided to go down this path? And who were the people in your life that you needed to convince that this was a good idea? In terms of the content? Well, yeah, in terms of literally building a business, the business of you around Bitcoin. Like who, when you said, hey, mom, hey, dad, or whoever it was, whoever the stakeholders in your life, obviously, including yourself were, did you need to convince anyone? What was that like? Take us back to like how old you were when the idea popped into your head that this is what you were going to be doing. And that encompasses everything from the podcast to the interviewing, TV appearances, and just the promotion of this new technology. The context here is in 2014, when I went to work at Facebook, the kind of big job that I had 
in big, not in sense of importance, but just kind of the main focus of my time there was running a team called the Facebook Pages Growth Team. And so literally our job was to get more people onto the Facebook Pages product, help them build audiences. And I met all kinds of amazing, from celebrities to business leaders, to brands, to meme accounts, et cetera, and really just kind of help them figure out like, how do you build an audience on this product? From there, I went, was the head of growth at Snapchat for a short period of time, and then started investing full-time. And when I started investing, I quickly realized that I had spent a lot of time, like literally multiple years helping other people build audiences, but I'd never done it for myself. After I left the Facebook Pages team, for example, I went and I worked for about a couple months, I don't remember, two, three months, whatever it was, helping Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, kind of how do they create a strategy so they can build their own audience on Facebook? Like people don't think about that type of work being done at a company, but, but that absolutely was a body of work that we focused on. That's cool. And so when I realized like I'd never done it for myself, I'd helped all these other people. I'd never done it for myself. And I knew that having a large audience would be valuable in the future. Kind of this idea of like audience is currency, yeah, but sure. I just didn't know why. And so I said, well, let me just get started. And frankly, partly because I'm lazy and partly because I know that for me, if I have some level of consistency, I'll stay with something and I'll be persistent. I just picked one platform, which was Twitter. And I really felt like Twitter was the platform where you could kind of go viral. You could build an audience quickly. It didn't require a lot of planning. It wasn't like YouTube where you had to go record videos, cut it and kind of do all this stuff. And so the convincing that I did was I literally already had a Twitter account. I think it had like 2000 followers and I'd had it for years, but just never used it. I don't even think that like I talked to a single person. I just started tweeting. And as I kind of approached this, it was just like, how do I grow this? And so a lot of the things that I had done at Facebook obviously helped in terms of understanding data and thinking about how the algorithm is designed and, and what kind of content will work and won't work. And then also just paying attention to like, hey, I threw a bunch of stuff at the wall, like what's stuck? And then just double and triple down on that. And so I always call out like, that's a great way to build a large audience. You also have to be careful because you kind of don't want to just become what the algorithm tells you to become. Like that's dangerous as well because then you just become the most extreme version of yourself. Well, you remember that too, Doug, when you were trying to grow your following on Twitter. That yeah, I mean, a lot of what you're saying here makes sense. And I think a lot of people, I'll just take a step to the side here, don't appreciate actually how difficult it is and how consistent you need to be at trial and error to come up with the thing that not only, it strikes a balance between who you are authentically and pleasing our algorithm gods. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And for me, it was like, I knew that there were some core kind of aspects to doing this, right? One was like creating an enormous amount of content on the platform, kind of overwhelming the algorithm. And so like, I literally started out in the beginning, I just said, I'm going to focus specifically on kind of business and investing was really the focus. And then it kind of even narrowed more over time to Bitcoin, but I'm not going to tweet about some sports game. I'm not going to tweet about what I had for lunch. Like it was literally years of just staying on topic, really, really narrow. And I would do things, everything from my own opinion to things that I was learning as I was kind of investing and stuff like that, to I would literally would go and just refresh the news pages and try to find what's the breaking news or whatever and tweet that. And so it was whatever I could do to create content on the platform. And so I did that for 18 months. After 18 months, I had gone from two or 3,000 followers to about 150,000 followers. That's insane. And then I, was on a flight back to New York with Polina. And I just said to her, I said, 
I probably should create a second platform. God forbid anyone ever has anything happened to my Twitter account. And she was like, yeah, you should write an email. Like you have a lot of opinions, just write an email. Interesting. And so like on the flight, I literally wrote the first email and I sent it the next morning. And again, knowing myself, it's just like, if I commit to doing something within the first two weeks, either I'm going to do it for a really long time or I'm not going to do it anymore. And so I knew that I had to get like two weeks of consistent publishing every morning. And now we are, that was in May of 2018. So we're two and a half years later and I've published pretty much every single weekday for two and a half years. And then in August of 18, I started the podcast, complete joke, like literally didn't even know what a podcast was, didn't know how they were recorded anything. Two guys, Jason Yanowitz and Michael Ippolito, came to me and were like, Hey, you should do a podcast. Like, we know how to do them. All you have to do is like interview people. And I was like, Okay, if I walk in the room, interview and leave and don't have to worry about anything, I'll do a test. Sure. Unbeknownst to me, they knew nothing. Like, they didn't even know what a microphone was. <laughs> uh, but I found that out later. But kudos to them. They just wanted, they wanted to work with you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kudos to them. I love it. But it's interesting what you said, though. I want to go back for one second because I really like this and I think this applies to so many people and so many things. Like you said, two weeks. I'm going to give this a shot for two weeks and I'm going to know whether this is an idea I abandon or whether one I'm going all in on. And I think that if more people adopted that mindset. Yeah, most people do it for two minutes and then abandon their project, let alone to be like consistent for two weeks. Like if you give it that much more of a shot, you'll really be able to determine whether or not this is something you're going to run with. Or to cut it loose. Yeah, or quit. Or just say, you know what? I don't like where this is going. You know, I've really tried to think about this critically and I don't like where this is going. Or if not, like, yeah, like, okay, this is working out very well. I wish I've cut my losses <laughs> on, on some project before and I wish that I've given it a better commitment before. I just thought that was an interesting... I think one of the key pieces here, and I usually kind of tell people this in terms of when they're selecting what job to take. But I think it's true here too, is it's the same thing like investing. The difference is that you're not investing capital. You're actually investing your most kind of precious resource, which is your time. And so if you think of the best investors in the world, they cut their losses faster than anyone and they press their winners harder than anyone. And so same thing on the content side. Now, the one caveat to this is you don't make the, should I cut it or should I keep going decision? based on traction. That's the one thing that I think people get confused is they say, hey, I started writing an email. Why don't I have 10,000 people subscribed after two weeks? Like this is stupid and they give I'm up. I'm guilty of that. Yeah. And it's natural. It's human nature. Like there's a scoreboard, if you will, in terms of a feedback loop of subscribers or likes or views or, or whatever. And so- Isn't that the nature of this- that's just the human condition, I guess. Yeah. And so what I tell people is just like, what you're making a decision on, should you stop or should you keep going is based on, do you enjoy it? And do you think that this can be big in the future? And then just, you got to stay at it for a long, long time. And the part that people don't like to hear is, so I told you how I got started with Twitter in 2017. I did the email in May of 18. I did the podcast in August of 18. And then I didn't do anything else for another year and a half. I literally just did those three things for a year and a half. And then only in January, 2020, I made the really big decision to add YouTube. And so it's like by going platform by platform and kind of focusing fanatically on figuring out a platform and building an audience there, 
what it does is one, it makes it easier to build the next platform because you have something to kind of stand on. But two is by having that focus, it allows you to build muscle memory so that now I release five podcasts a week. I release five of the daily YouTube show with Polina. And I started a second podcast and released two episodes of that. Plus I write five times a week. And people are like, how the hell do you do all that? I was like, I've been doing it for years and it's literally second nature and it takes me very, very little time. And so I think that's kind of the holy grail of getting to the point where it is second nature, but just like anything, you have to practice, you have to build the muscle memory. And then only once you have that, can you add other things? Because if you try to go do everything all at once, you're probably actually going to just suck at everything. And here's what's interesting. I find that even though you're being very self-aware and very honest with what it takes to get to a place where it's easier or it takes less time, I think it still downplays how hard it really is. And I understand that in the context of committing to write a blog post once a week. And I went like 80 weeks in a row. And yes, it was easier, but it still wasn't enough for that to be as easy or as fluid as I would want. Like it was going to take years more of consistent writing in order to do what you've described. And the only thing before COVID kind of wrecked my writing schedule here, the only thing I really did gain from is I can get back into it. That's number one. And number two is being humbled over how many of the, out of those 80 posts, which ones were actually going to get the engagement or the amount of eyeballs on it. And that to me, that humbling feeling of, okay, it's like one in 20 or one in 25 at best. This is why we're continuing to work on that. You've been doing so much of it. So it's awesome to hear how it has evolved to a point where it is quicker, it's easier, and it's second nature. And I also think it's somewhat like the promise to the audience. So there's a lot of people that I can think of that they might publish something, let's say writing, they might publish a piece of writing once a week or once a month. And when they write, you stop everything and go read it. And it's amazing. But they only can do that once a week, once a month, once a quarter. Like it's just not possible to create at that level of quality consistently on a day-to-day basis. And so if you want for what I think of as like highest quality, lowest frequency, there's a lot of people who succeed there. If you want to go the extreme opposite end, which is what I do, I say, I am going to go with good enough quality, but consistent high frequency, meaning that every day I write, it's not the best thing that I've ever written, but it is good enough to be interesting and valuable to people. Then that's the kind of opposite end of the extreme. Do you have to have some sort of self-awareness, I guess, as a creator to really know where you fall in the scale of that type of content? I mean, like for me, I consider myself a writer. I'm also a lawyer. So every word that gets written on a page is scrutinized by me. I am my own worst critic. When I produce content, it is usually very carefully thought out, but to my own detriment. It could take weeks, whereas Douglas was able to produce a blog post every single Do you think it's personal, I guess is my question. I mean, do you have to know yourself? I think it really matters what you're writing about. So if I was to say, hey, my promise to the audience is that every day I'm going to cover the news and I'm going to do it in an unbiased manner, 
I would have stopped years ago. Instead, what I say is, hey, every morning I'm going to send this letter to whoever wants to get it, and it is going to have my personal opinion about an event that I care about. And so every morning when I wake up, I have no clue what I'm going to write about. It usually takes me now, if I'm not screwing around on the internet and tweeting and doing all that other stuff, I can get it done in like 25 to 45 minutes. If I'm screwing around a bunch of other stuff, maybe it takes me an hour. But the reason why I can write it so fast is one, I've been doing it every day for a long time, so I have muscle memory. But two is I'm writing my opinion. And so I can quickly scan a couple of different news sites, figure out, okay, here's an interesting story that I want to talk about today. I'll write two to three paragraphs about what happened just so people have context. And then the remainder of the piece is just my opinion. And it's almost funny at this point that, sure, I might spell a word wrong. Or like I can't tell you how many times this year somebody's responded and been like, hey, man, I know that you're doing a lot, but the government didn't print $3 billion. They printed $3 trillion, (laughs) right? And so it's that type of stuff. But again, I think it's just having the kind of openness and really authenticity and honesty with people to say like, hey, I write this. I'm going to make mistakes. If I make a really egregious one, like let me know and I'll fix it. But otherwise, like basically don't break my back on the fact that like I missed a period because I frankly, I don't care. Look, I just, it's too small of a detail to make sure you get it 100%. But if I get 99% accuracy on every single piece and I do it for years, that's actually better than 100% accuracy once a week for years. Look, I won't judge you for your grammatical errors. Heather <laughs> Heather over here will throw the AP style book at your face. It's the nature of my business. Don't hate. But I think my bigger Helena point- will do the same. Don't worry. <laughs> I think the bigger point is if you have grammar police coming after you for small little things, it's actually a testament to- that many eyeballs on your work. So I think it's always a good day when you have people writing to you like, hey, I caught something particularly minor. So when it comes to the content, I mean, you're creating content about all sorts of things, but we started with the Bitcoin. So I'm (laughs) the Bitcoin. So back to the Bitcoin for a second. Do you believe that the content you're creating adds credibility to this concept? Because it's always under attack from haters big and small. I play both sides. I like it every day. <laughs> you do day. play both sides. You're, yeah. You are like the ultimate pot stirrer. I get here. crypto Twitter all riled up and, and then I love them and back and forth. <laughs> yeah. I think that, again, it comes down to understanding where you fit into the greater picture. And so I am not a computer scientist. I could not sit and debate the finer points of the security algorithm and technical trade-off decisions that are going to get made. It's not my game. I don't have that knowledge. Frankly, I'm not that intellectually stimulated by that type of information. And therefore, I don't spend a lot of time there. At the same time, I don't just invest or don't just build things. I kind of touch a number of different things in more of a jack of all trades type approach. And so when I thought through kind of in the early days of writing and podcast, kind of what did I want to cover? What did I want to talk about? What I want to write about? It really was just... I think that I've got a skill where I can take a lot of these complex topics and boil them down to very easy to understand language. And so in our investing business, that's fantastic because I can literally walk into institutional invest offices and say to them, hey, I know that you've heard about this and people have probably told you all kinds of crazy 
descriptions and explanations and all this stuff. What are your questions? And I'll just answer them in plain English. And like, that's been really, really powerful, but that doesn't just work kind of in the boardroom, if you will, or in the institutional investment world. It also works and it works really, really well on television, on the podcast, when you're writing, et cetera. And so to me, it is understanding who I'm communicating with and doing it in a language that kind of resonates with them. That's not computer science. But I would argue that in many cases, it's just as important in any industry, not just Bitcoin, I mean, just anywhere, because ultimately the only way that you get adoption of something is if people understand it. And so I I look at it very much as like a team effort where in Bitcoin, we've got developers, we've got people who create content, we've got investors, we've got people who just use it, we've got people who hold it, we've got people who attack it. Every single person kind of plays a role. Yeah, everyone plays a role in making it work. It's got to be like that. So along the vein of changing people's minds through adding credibility or creating ecosystems around things, let's take a second here to acknowledge that historically, you've had some controversial tweets, some pretty hot takes around Bitcoin. You're kind of known for that. True statement? You agree with that? They're controversial only for the people who think that Bitcoin is not what it is. But yes, I definitely agree that there is controversy. (laughs) Right. And I love you for it. But for someone who has mastered many platforms and even got their start, their professional start working for social media platforms. How important is it to poke the bear per se? So in other words, if you're promoting a disruptive product or concept, in this case, currency, whatever it may be, do you yourself need to be disruptive? So I look at it differently. And I don't know the answer to that question. I'd have to think about it more deeply. I definitely think that Let me answer it this way. So there are some things that are intuitive, which controversy can drive eyeballs. Not it has to, but it can. Too much controversy can drive eyeballs away. There's a balance. There's also some counterintuitive things. Like there's a bunch of academic studies that show positive news is actually more viral than negative news. So most people, I think, believe like the classic like local news, if it bleeds, it leads. You got to show people dying or shootings or whatever. But actually what's been found in these academic studies is that the positive news, so the dog saving their owner from the pool or that type of stuff ends up being much more viral than the negative stuff. And so I don't know so much if it is controversy that necessarily drives everything as much as it is engagement for sure. And ultimately, engagement is driven by emotion. And so controversy leads to emotional responses. Usually, they're pitted against each other, which is why that stuff goes so viral. But also, just positivity can also elicit emotional reactions and kind of drive it. What I would say for me is like, obviously, I understand this stuff. I mean, I've thought a lot about it through a whole bunch of different things that I've done. But really, I don't have a master plan. And I think this surprises people. But I don't think about writing something that's controversial. I don't think about, hey, I'm going to tweet this because I think it's going to go viral. It's more so just, I made a decision a number of years ago, like I'm going to be myself. I'm going to be as transparent and authentic as I possibly can, frankly, because it makes me happy. And I don't care what anybody else thinks. I love that. And like that scares the shit out of people, (laughs) right? Because I will literally... I will literally say things that people are like, oh my God, I can't believe he said that. 
But well, I'm you're like, not doing it for them. You're doing it for you. I mean, that's the difference in the mindset is that you, who are you doing it for? But that's what you built from day one. This was all led by you taking us back to like a earlier point in the interview here. You literally said you were building audiences and platforms for everybody else but yourself. And this thing is, as Heather just said, this is for you, literally. Yeah. And I also think like, so one of the things I always contemplate is somebody that you see on the internet, whether it's Instagram and kind of all the photos or Twitter or YouTube or whatever. What is the conversation they have with people at dinner behind closed doors? Like (laughs) how close is the thing that they're putting online to the thing that you get when you have dinner with them behind closed doors? And for most people, like there's a pretty big difference. Big, big difference. My friends will be the first to say it. If you come to my apartment and you have dinner, my favorite question to ask people is what's the thing you believe that would be inappropriate or politically incorrect to say out loud? Like that's literally the conversations that I like to have. And so it's when that's the conversation that you have behind closed doors, it's almost in some weird way, even more controversial or even crazier than what's put out online. Because I think most people are the inverse, is they put kind of their best foot forward online and then behind closed doors, there's a lack of substance or whatever it is. For me- I take the things that I talk about online and I'm actually even more over-rotated on them in person because either one, I'm interested in them. Two, I think that there's like things you can learn from having those conversations. Or three is I think it pulls other people out of their shell. Yeah, that last one. And so it's like- It gets you a better conversation at the dinner table with your guests. Of course. And like, by the way, there's sometimes like people will say things and everyone realizes like, wait a minute, we all actually like probably agree on a lot more than we disagree on. And so I think like that's part of this is just Twitter's really hard. Twitter specifically is really hard because it's limited characters. Limited. There's not a lot of nuance, all the problems that we know that exist there. But I do think that the people who are the most authentic on the internet are usually the people I find the most engaging and I enjoy hanging out with the most offline. And so it's just a matter of like, it's like an authenticity scale. The less authentic you are on the internet, the more that your actual self is probably like boring, lame, and not worth hanging out. 100%. Couldn't agree it's more. A, it's, it's actually a big letdown, <laughs> especially when you're meeting someone that you formed an online relationship with, and then you meet them in real An life. online relationship. I love it. That's, <laughs> it's so true. Internet friends. I always joke about Doug's like, fake internet friends. And I say, they're real. Unless he's had like a legit get together with them. I'm like, have you had a beer with this person? Yeah. Heather has a rule <laughs> that unless I've had a phone call like or they're a not your friends, they're not, they're not even real, so to speak. So that's just a strange. <laughs> they're not your her. friends yet. So just to wrap things up here, and this has been awesome. The number one is when are we coming over for the dinner and to have these conversations? Uh, no. And in all seriousness, I happen to know, speaking of food, I happen to know, as many others do who follow you, that you're a huge Domino's pizza fan. But other than eating Domino's as a fourth meal, here's the question we ask every guest on the show. What's been keeping you up at night? Well, I'm going to answer probably the way you don't want me to answer, but nothing because in 2020, before this pandemic, I made the decision. Last year, I took 120 flights and didn't realize I was beating up my body and just doing all the things I shouldn't do. And at the beginning of the year, I decided I was not going to travel at all if possible, but very minimal. 
And so part of that was I wanted to get better at sleeping. And this entire year I've spent, thankfully there was a pandemic, so it made it even easier, but have really focused on like, how do you get better sleep so that nothing keeps you up at night? And the three things that I learned are one, if you can just spend your day doing the things that make you happy, it means you have way less stress. And that is like a huge inflection point in terms of the quality and time of sleep. Two is if you do enough physical activity every day so that you're actually tired at night, that's another huge inflection point. And then the third one is all kinds of little tips and tricks around what to do before bed. So not drinking alcohol before bed, having kind of a cooled environment that helps you sleep deeper, the way that you kind of go to sleep consistently at the same time and wake up at the same time, like all these little hacks. And so like, if you asked me that question last year, there's all kinds of stuff that kept me awake. But this year, like I actually just try to sleep as much as I possibly can. And it's really been able to increase the quality of the things I do while I'm awake. And so like, I'm a convert now. Wow. I'm shook. Jealous. <laughs> so, so am I. I think. I, and so will many of our listeners. Yeah. So I will know. Many of our I know the kid thing. Please. I know everyone yells at me because I don't I have know. kids. No, enjoy it. Seriously, enjoy it. And I was like, chuckling under my breath here to Heather, like, call him out, call him out about the kid thing. No, no, oh, I no. Know. we don't call people out about the kid thing. That's I know, not, that's not I what know. You do. It, it was an easy thing, but I wanted to, all joking aside, Heather gets on me for, like, I'm a sleep apotamus. Like, it's my favorite activity in the world. I am religious about, oh, if it's past 11, like, that's bad. He I can mean, shut it off. He just shuts it off. Like, a dark room's great. She wants to watch TV, fine. But there's a lot of truth to that. Like, very on point there. Anthony, I think people, unfortunately, people don't invest in sleep, whether that's a mattress or just finding the time to do it, regardless. Hence the title of our podcast. Exactly. And hence why I drink so much coffee. So, Pump, thank you so much for coming on the show. It really does mean a lot to us. Before we send you off here to get some more sleep, where can people find you? Just on Twitter. Just at A. Pompliano is the best place. And I do enough tweeting from there that you'll find everything else. All roads lead to the Twitter. Again, thank you so much. Thank you. Absolutely, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for staying up with us and checking out We Should Be Sleeping. Connect with us on social media, subscribe to the podcast, and learn more at weshouldbesleeping.com. We'll see you next time on We Should Be Sleeping. We Should Be Sleeping.